1208, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, you did not get the We're Red, it's Valentine's Day memo, huh? <laughs> no, I missed that one. All right. Well, that's my fault. No, no, no. That, that's okay. Where are you on the, your wife tells you, don't, let's not exchange gifts, let's not do anything for Valentine's Day. Do you still do it anyways? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 say, I, that was the deal. And I got sent over, I, I okay, we, we love, I love our friends at Burke's Candy right down the street. And okay. so it's like I, I, my, I was told, okay, go to Burke's Candy because I need you to get some, some candy for some, some friends for Valentine's mm-hmm, Day. Mm-hmm. Don't get me anything. All right. Well, you can't go. I mean, no, no, that's not going to happen. So, I mean, I, I, get, I get the thing of candy. And so I – but, I mean, so I thought I was covering myself. And then, like I say, last night I come up and there's a card and there's a framed picture of us that I love. And there's some M&Ms that yeah, I love Yeah, she won up to well. She did it last night, too. She got in ahead of the uh... – Well, ahead of the Valentine. Right. Yeah. I wasn't supposed to find – I don't think she knew I was going to go back upstairs to my office. Okay. So I think okay. it was supposed to be there when I, when I woke up and went upstairs this mm-hmm. morning. But I found it last night. But, but again, I was sitting there thinking – Oh, glad I picked up that candy at least, you know, so you, you kind of got that covered. So hey, the first segment of the program, we, we live stream on Facebook. I, it is, it's one of the things about, you know, they say TV ads wait. I'm, I am wearing something that is red. If, you know, if you look at it on the Facebook, the live stream, it looks like I'm wearing something that's like bright orange, but it's not, right? This is, this is red. A little bit of an orangish hue to it, maybe. Uh, all right. Uh, you're not helping me out there at all. No, no, no. It's red. This is my Margaritaville sort of red Valentine's Day thing. We have a lot of ground to cover on today's program, and there's some very, very serious things that are going on. Um, in in Washington, you've got, of course, the, the budget deal that appears that the president's going to sign off on that. Uh, revelations by a acting FBI director who's trying to sell a book, who did an interview with 60 Minutes, really saying, yeah, we were essentially conducting an investigation into the president. We explored whether or not we could invoke the 25th Amendment, removing him because he was not uh, considering at least removing him because he was not competent. So we're going to talk a little bit about that. It's the one-year anniversary of the Parkland shooting. And there there is some legislation that is moving through the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives. And I have a take on it that might surprise some of you, but we're going to have that conversation as well. And a lot of our typical conversations about political correctness run amok and some special Valentine's Day programming. So stick around for the whole program. Again, the first couple segments of the program, we live stream. You can go to facebook.com slash 620WTMJ. I swear, even though it looks like it's orange on the broadcast feed, it's really red. It's really red in honor of Valentine's Day. All right, let us get started. There is a school district. And by the way, if you follow me at Twitter, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. What I tend to do, and I've been, I've been pretty good about this as part of my New Year's resolution, every day I'll send out three or four tweets talking about some of the different stories that we're going to discuss and, and containing links to some of those stories. So again, it's at Jeff Wagner 620. But Well, let's start off with the story about this school district. There is a school district in Marin County, California. Marin County is right across the bay from San Francisco. So you are talking about, um, in general, a very, very wealthy area. This isn't necessarily the wealthiest of school districts, but this is its kind of by the People's Republic of San Francisco and Oakland and all that. The school district is called the Dixie School District. It has been the Dixie School District since 1864. Now, because it goes back 
1864. There's a little bit of, let, let's say, a lack of clarity as to where the name originally, originally comes from. Conventional wisdom, the, the general thinking is that the Dixie School District was named after a woman named Mary Dixie, who was a Native American, a Miwok Indian. Um, they say that she was apparently very close to the founder of the school district. Again, this is back in 1864, and so th- this name was to honor her. That is the conventional wisdom on this. There are some people who say, yeah, we've heard that story about this, but that's that's not what this really was. This was 1864. It was during the time of the Civil War, and, and there's another school of thought that says this was kind of uh, a name that some people, even though this is in California, this is a name that some people came up with because they wanted to do a tribute to the South, to, to Dixie. So there's these two arguments. Most people seem to think it's named after the Native American lady. But uh, again, it's 1864. They didn't keep records. So it, I guess it's a little bit arguably up in the air. But the place, the area, the school district has been called Dixie since 1864. There has been a movement that's kind of been simmering over the last couple years, and now it has bubbled up to the top, and you have a number of activists who are angry that this is called the Dixie School District. They say that um, you know students of color make up about um, 35% of the school population. However, African-Americans are only about 3%, so I assume it's much largely la- Latino would be my, my guess on this. But nevertheless, they say by calling this the Dixie School System, what's happening, the Dixie School District, this is an insult to all the persons of color, and particularly the 3% who have to be happen to be African-American. And there has been this huge push to do away with this name. So far, the school district has resisted the urge, but this is now getting national attention. And there was a meeting the other night, Tuesday night, I believe, and the school officials, a heated meeting, four or five hour meeting, people screaming, school officials said, oh, well, we're not ready to change this yet, but we will continue to study this. All right. Our number, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let, let's, let's tee this up. Now, a lot of times when this debate comes up, there's no question that the, the monument, for example, that the monument we all know what it's a monument to. It's a, it's a statue of a Civil War general. There's no question that if you're talking about a school district that's named the Robert E. Lee School District, well, okay, and it's in you know Virginia, there's no question it's named after Confederate General Robert E. Lee. In this case, it's a lot murkier. You have a school district in California, and the, the name is Dixie, which is capable, I guess, of a lot of interpretations. Is the name Dixie inherently racist, and do we need to scrub 
American school districts and American life from things that are named Dixie. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. My response, and we'll go into this in a little bit of detail later, my response is just no, but but heck no. And you know, where are these social justice warriors going to draw the line? But what do you think? Is Dixie inherently racist? Does it need to go? 414-799-1620. If you're on the line, please hold on. We discuss in just a moment. And again, if you want to follow the segment, facebook.com slash 620 WTMJ. 1216, Jeff Wagner. Twelve nineteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I, I, I don't, I don't make this up. School district in California, right outside of San Francisco, Marin County. It's called the Dixie School District. Now, it goes back to 1864. If you're just tuning in, there's a little bit of question where the name come came came from. It's 1864, so nobody knows for sure. The conventional wisdom is that it's named after an American Indian woman named Marie Dixie, who was a close friend of the guy who founded the first school that's out there. Some people say, well, no, it really wasn't that. It was a kind of a wink-wink, nod-nod tribute to the Confederacy. All right, nobody knows for sure, but it's been the Dixie School District since 1864. Now you have some agitators, some people in the district, but a lot of people outside we're saying this is incredible. This is appalling. This is an insult to students of color. How dare we make them go to the Dixie School District? 414-799-1620. Carol on the west side. Carol, you're first. Good afternoon. Hi there. I said I feel like Alice going down the rabbit hole. I'm ready for the Manhattan to serve tea. <laughs> but the uh, next thing, I don't remember the name of the cartoon, but there were two mice that were Pixie and Dixie. I guess we're going to have to change them. Oh, well, well, I mean, right, where do we start the line? How about, like, the, those little paper cups that you drink, you know, the Dixie cups? Oh, yep. You know, can can we never can we never have that? Right, I mean, it's where, where do you end up drawing the line? And I guess my problem, Carol, is at some point in time, when you have these people who get worked up about this stuff, why don't, why can't we just say, you know, you desperately need to get a life. You know, concentrate on something that is of importance here, not some weird interpretation you have of a benign name. So true. Um, thanks to call. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Where do we end up drawing the line? For example, if you travel in the southeast and it's one of those deals where you're staying overnight in, I don't know, Jacksonville, Florida or something like that, and you decide, hey, I, I want to run out to a grocery store and I want to get a six-pack of beer that I'm going to throw in the hotel refrigerator or something like that, you know, there is a very good chance that you might go to a grocery store chain that has been around, oh, for around 100 years. It's called the Winn-Dixie. Matter of fact, I think there might be plays about that as well. But it's Winn-Dixie, which is a, a big grocery store chain. Um, it, it's the combination of the Wind grocery stores and the Dixie home chain, and they put them together, and now it's a big chain. But it's Winn-Dixie. In that particular case, I don't think there's even any argument that the Dixie, in that case, refers to the South. It's, you know, it's located in the South. This is the Dixie home improvement chain. But yet nobody is offended by that because it's not 
like it's not like a statement of racism. It is a statement of of the area. Now, again, here it's it's a much more problematic thing. Nobody knows where the name exactly came from. But from a practical perspective, that is, should people be legitimately offended? My response would be if you've got the time to get worked up over this particular name, that tells me you've got nothing other significant that's going on in your life. Uh, a couple texts. Mike's text. Jeff, I think it's ridiculous and a waste of time to consider changing the name of an institution that's been around for um, more than 200 years. Well, actually, 1864, so 150 or so. There's a To your point, there's a grocery chain called Winn-Dixie. Do they need to change their name? People who have these objections have too much time on their hands. All right, another text. Jeff, I don't understand how these people get all this power. Enough already. Well, see, that's the, that's part of the larger problem as well. I, you know, I was talking about something similar to this the other day, and somebody texted and said, well, you, you just don't understand. If anybody's offended by whatever it was that we were talking about, they need to change it. To which my response is, why? I mean, at, at some point in time, look, there, there is somebody that is going to be offended about everything. Maybe it was the story... I was talking about the Katy Perry shoes. If you weren't listening during that segment of the program, Katy Perry, who is the the, the singer, for the last couple of years, she's had a line of shoes that, that are, are out, and they're, they're supposed to be clever. And, and what they are is the shoes are made to look like faces, and um, they've got what appears to be like a little nose on them, and they've got two buttons that appear to be eyes, and then uh, at the toe of every shoe, they've got red lips. And so they they come in all sorts of different colors. But, you know, somebody says, well, the black shoes. Well, these are black shoes, and they've got these red lips. Oh, my goodness, this means that, oh, my goodness, this means that this is blackface, and we're going to be offended by it. Well, I mean, I understand. Again, that you've got these social justice warriors who are looking at this and they're trying to find something that's offensive. And now we're we're scouring American life, trying to find examples of blackface so we can get ourselves all worked up about it. But what it really is, is it's a pair of shoes that, again, have a face on them. There's no blackface. It's kind of like saying, well, we need to ban Mr. Potato Head because, again, you've got the bright red lips that you could put on Mrs. Potato Head. 414-799-1620. Adam in Milwaukee. Adam, you're on WTMJ. Hi. Hi, Adam. I saw on your screener that uh, if I was king, uh, I would give these agitators what it is that they ask for. You want your stupid name change, you can have it, but not what it is that they truly want, and that is virtue points. Yeah. It really is about them more than anything else, you know, right. rather than accomplishing some good, it's me wanting to be able to pat myself on the back and say, look how virtuous I am, I'm helping the... Well, well, well right, you know, I mean, think of all, I mean, if you want to do something that would be constructive, instead of spending hours and hours and hours trying to get petitions and showing up at, at the school board meetings and agitating on this, go work in a food bank. I mean, go do something, go do something that is really going to help improve the quality of life of people in the community. But that's not what it's all about, Adam. No. You're right. It's the virtue points. If, if I could find a way to you know, say, here, you want it, but um, make sure that no applause is given, no recognition is given. That would just bring me delight. <laughs> right. That, that, thanks for calling. Okay, here it's the text. I'm just, Jeff, I'm disgusted by this conversation. I have to sip some water from my Dixie cup. Well, be careful. Tom and Mequon asks the point. 
All right. Do the Dixie Chicks have to change their name? Very, very good. I mean, what I mean, think about how how should we be offended by the the Dixie Chicks? Of course, you know, very, very left leaning themselves. But how could they have a name that is so incredibly and totally unwoke uh, by by having this? Bottom line is, and I and I sent out a tweet on this. If you the, the tweet I have I sent out has a link to a story that CNN did on this. There's a cult, bunch of other stories, but if you watch the the story that's contained in the link, there's people screaming, and there there's folks that are going down, and they're just they are calling the school board members every name but a child of God because they want this name receded because they think it is just absolutely and totally offended. At what point in time do we say? Just for the love of God, get a life, concentrate on stuff that is important, as opposed to trying to, uh, again, take your peculiar view, worldview of life and things that are offensive and try to inflict it on mainstream America. 1227, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Twelve thirty four, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. The Milwaukee Brewers twenty nineteen championship season right around the corner, and this weekend is your first chance to secure your spot at Miller Park. It is the annual Arctic Tailgate, which gives fans a chance to purchase single game tickets for the first time. WTMJ is going to be there all weekend in our big tailgater studio. That's the big giant talking box. Come on by, say hello. Don't forget, WTMJ is your home for Brewers baseball. Matter of fact, I think the first couple spring training games that we're going to air next weekend not this coming weekend but a week from saturday it's good to have baseball back all right the i don't know if you're familiar with the name andrew mccabe andrew mccabe was the the former like number two guy at the fbi and what happened was when president trump in may of 2017 fired james comey andrew mccabe took over as the acting director. He was like the next in line of succession until they got a, a permanent director that would be that would be in there. Andrew McCabe, by his his wife was a big time Democrat. She had run unsuccessfully for the Virginia State Senate. So she's a Democrat activist. And it is very clear from stuff that has surfaced since then that that Andrew McCabe had no use for Donald Trump. No, no use for Donald Trump when he was running for office and even less use for Donald Trump when Donald Trump became president. Andrew McCabe is coming out with a book. The book is called The Threat. And it hits the newsstands. I think it, it. I think it hits bookshelves next Tuesday. Um, but but here's. It's called the threat. How the FBI protects America in the age of terror and Trump. And Andrew McCabe. He's trying to sell books. He gives an interview that's going to air on CB uh, on CBS's 60 Minutes th- this Sunday night. And this is the, the story that, that's out there today. What he says is that. After he took over, when James Comey was fired, he decided that he was going to throw the Russia investigation into Trump into high gear. I mean, this is part of what he says in his interview. I was very concerned that I was able to put the Russia case on absolutely solid ground in an indelible fashion that were I removed quickly or reassigned or fired, the case could not be closed or vanished in the night without a trace. Um, he says that after he took over, he gets a call from the president. I was speaking to the man who had just run for the presidency 
won the election for the presidency and who might have done so with the aid of the government of Russia, our most formal adversary on the world stage. And that was something that troubled me greatly. So here you have a guy who actually was was also part of kind of the let's overlook the Hillary Clinton email stuff, who now is in charge of the FBI and very, very clearly decided, I want to go full speed ahead in starting an investigation of President Trump. Now, it's interesting because apparently there's a number of FBI agents who were concerned that the fact that McCabe was doing this as quickly as he was had a lot of people concerned that he was acting too hastily because, all right, James Comey's now been removed. We don't know where the evidence leads. We don't even know that we have any evidence of this. But now you have somebody who's apparently suggesting to the number three guy at the Department of Justice, this Rob Rosenstein, that, that he might want to wear a wire. And that's apparently being talked about. And he says, yeah, this is one of the things that I was pushing for. And McCabe is apparently also talking about how, you know, maybe what we should start to do is explore discussions of the 25th Amendment. That's like, let's go about the uh, let's go through the cabinet and figure out how many would vote that the president is incapacitated and should be removed. All sorts of stuff which seem to be. Very, very interesting that you would have an FBI director trying to do that without a lot more evidence that existed here. So now you have other people coming out and saying that what McCabe is talking about, it it's inaccurate, it's factually incorrect. The spokesperson for Rob Rosenstein, Rob Rosenstein, who's the number three guy at the Department of Justice, who's been supervising the Mueller investigation, he says, um, look, this this just didn't happen. The deputy attorney general never authorized any recording that Mr. McCabe references. Um, There's no basis to invoke the 25th Amendment. But yet you have McCabe selling that this kind of story. I don't I don't know that this advances the narrative at all, other than to say that it's very, very clear to me that you had members of the the, F, the highest levels of the FBI, whether it's James Comey or it's Mike McCabe, who just had, had Andrew McCabe, I'm sorry, who had no use at all for President Trump and who wanted to believe the worst. And even though th- there wasn't overt evidence that was out there, there then, they wanted to... I mean, take what I think are pretty extraordinary steps here. Let's let's try to essentially have a senior member of the Department of Justice wear a wire when he goes in and talks to the president of the United States and see if he can get the president of the United States to make incriminating admissions or things like that. Now, I, I guess maybe there is a time to do that. You would think that you would need more of a basis in evidence than the FBI apparently had. And it does, again, make you wonder about what was going on at the FBI. And it's very, very clear to me that, you know, Andrew McCabe was a a partisan who didn't like Trump, wanted to try to bring Donald Trump down. And now he's out there selling books. Now, again, I, I, I understand why. There's a lot of stuff that, you know, President Trump does that attracts attention and attracts people and gets people upset and things like that. But, you know, you're talking about wearing a wire to try to incriminate the president of the United States. And it seems to me before you take that step, you you better have pretty 
darn good information that there has been a crime that has been committed. And I don't think the FBI had that. At least the FBI, if they had it, they would have turned it over to the Mueller investigation, and the Mueller investigation would have led somewhere. This, I think, really did have some of the elements of a political witch hunt. And again, I, I understand that President Trump brings some of this on himself, but there is no question in my mind, and you read some of these statements, and I understand the guy thinks he's a hero and he's trying to sell a book. You read some of these statements, and from a professional law enforcement perspective, you, you come away with this conclusion that you had a guy who had a vendetta, who didn't like Trump, who was appalled by Trump, who was perhaps loyal to James Comey, and decided, okay, my mission is to try to bring down the president. Thus far, he failed. It's 1242. When we come back, the war on Valentine's Day continues. Stick around. It's 1244. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ iPhone users. WTMJ has a new and improved app. It's easier to find news stories, plus get notifications on breaking news and feature stories. You can also listen live or check out show podcasts. Go to the App Store on your phone, download it now, and then when you get to that podcast page, you can subscribe to mine. I get to see the numbers every month, and I know lots of people do it. I very much appreciate that. All right. It is Valentine's Day. And what that means is that there is a controversy that exists this time every year in certain American schools. And that is, do you recognize Valentine's Day or not? Now, Gru, let's talk about a generational thing. When you were in school, Valentine's Day, did you, like, exchange Valentines and stuff? You did, yeah. Okay, now, did your school have a rule that if you brought Valentines, you had to give them to all your classmates? Yes, they did, right. Now, see, that's... That's where, again, this has kind of morphed over the years because back back when I was a kid, they, they didn't have that, that rule. And what you could do, and, and I mean, there was, for example, let's say you've got this awful bully who is terrorizing the entire class with the exception of two or three of the members of the bully's posse. But the, back when I was growing up, you know, you, you didn't have to give a Valentine to the kid that was taking your lunch money every day. But we, we became, as, as time went on, we began to understand that, well, we should, we should be figuring out, we should be more understanding towards that, that bully. And so rather than have the kid that's terrorizing you feel like, well, okay, he might feel ostracized, that they changed the rules to say that, that you have to give a, a Valentine. So everybody has to get Valentines. You have to give Valentines to everybody. Now, I happen to think that that's silly, but, but I understand that that's where we have emerged. Well, I guess the overriding question, though, becomes, does Valentine's Day still have a role in schools? I bring this up because tonight there is going to be a school board meeting in Bethel, Oregon. Bethel School Board. This meeting had to be rescheduled from Monday night because essentially Monday night what happened was there were about 100 parents who stormed the regularly scheduled school board meeting, and demanded to be heard. And the school board did not like what these parents were saying. And so after about 30 minutes, they just decided that they, were, they weren't going to listen anymore. They were going to end the meeting, and they'll come back Thursday and try again. Um, apparently, at one point in time, the reports are board members turned their backs to members of the crowd when they were speaking out. 
So what, what has caused all this? Well, in this particular school district, in the past, students celebrated Valentine's Day with the traditional exchange of cards and candy, right? Just like perhaps you celebrated Valentine's Day. The district, however, has decided that we can no longer have this. So the rule is this year, no schools in the entire school district will have traditional Valentine's Day parties. No candy, no card exchanges, no nothing. And the argument is they need to do this because, well, some parents might have problems with, well, here's the way they expressly say it. It's, it's not, it's not an education thing. It's not, gee, we can't set aside time for a Valentine's Day party because the, the time would be better spent teaching the kids how to read or we don't want to detract from doing the math. That's not the argument. District officials say that they don't want organized holiday parties like one for Valentine's Day because they often end up excluding children whose parents don't have the means to buy Valentine's as well as students who don't do well in a party setting or have a religious objection. A religious objection to Valentine's Day. Students might feel uncomfortable because they don't do well in a party setting or they don't have the means to buy Valentine's. All right, let's open up the phone lines. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, maybe I'm the dinosaur wrestling around in the tar pit here on Valentine's Day. If you want to say, look, I, I just think it's a waste of time and it's better off time spent, better off, you know, reading or something like that. All right. That's that is at least a legitimate argument. But that's not why they say you can't have Valentine's Day parties. They say they are exclusionary. Parents might have religious objections. Don't know what religion would object to a Valentine's Day party. Para, some kids might feel uncomfortable in a party setting. I don't even know what that means. And, well, maybe it's a financial thing. You know, kids might not be able to afford Valentine's, in which case I would say either don't participate or you you get some construction paper and you make up a bunch of Valentine's. But let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This school district has decided, nope, we got to do away. We want to do away with holiday parties in general. Valentine's Day is a good place to start. Do we really need to go this far? We discuss in just a moment. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620, which is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1251. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Fifty-three, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, school district in, in Oregon has canceled. They're, they're trying to get rid of all holiday parties, but they started with Valentine's Day. No Valentine's Day functions. The parents are revolting. There was a heated school board meeting on Monday, so bad that the school board members had to just to stop. They said, we, we don't want to hear what you have to say. They're going to try again today. Do you need to remove Valentine's Day parties from schools? And again, the reason they're doing this, it's not because they feel it's a waste of time or be better off spent having the kids learn to read. It's that, well, you know, we don't want some children to feel excluded because of Valentine's Day. 414-799-1620. Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. 
Hey, Jeff. Um, I do think that students and teachers should not be able to give each other Valentines because that's just nothing but trouble. But if done correctly, I think students and students giving each other Valentines, I think that could actually be educational because it can, you know, help them prepare for, you know, romantic situations later in life. Well, or just, for, I get, let me go back to what you said first. Why, why do you think it's just trouble if you've got a second grade, group of second grade kids that make Valentines and give them to their, you know, their teacher, Mrs. Coffer or whatever? Well, with middle teachers, that can be that can be a pretty awkward thing. And with everything you hear about on the news, you know, about teachers getting in trouble with their students, that's just an area that I, I wouldn't even go go, then, go into. Jeff, you're a bigger thanks for you're you're a bigger cynic than I am. I mean, okay, it's it. I mean, look, I I understand if you've got I don't know a 23 year old high school teacher who's involved in sending out valentines to the 16-year-old, you know, school sophomore junior. I get maybe there, but I guess I I'm thinking of you you got second grade and if you've got the the kids that want to exchange valentines and somebody brings a valentine for their teacher, I I don't I guess I I I don't see that that is a problem. And I'm not sure it's even necessarily a romance type of thing. It's just I think for most people like Valentine's Day is a thing of a friendship. It's kind of it's just sort of a cute tradition. I was watching the Peanuts special the other night with, you know, the it's Valentine's Day Charlie Brown. I mean it just kind of here, let's let's just be nice and let's have this exchange. Let's talk to Bob in Oshkosh. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Yeah, hi. I've studied uh, Valentine's Day. I'm one of Jehovah's Witnesses, and we can see the holiday is steeped in false religious, uh, false god worship, and it has very pagan roots. And for a lot of people, they would not feel comfortable because they know that in the Bible, God says stay away and separate ourselves from the pagans. So for that reason, um, kids just don't participate. They just sit there. They don't protest it, but they're like, well, we're not going to do this. And it's like a lot of things. But honestly, if they're at a parochial school where the whole school is a certain religion and that's what they want to do, that would be fine. But there should be a separation of church and state. And Valentine's Day certainly is a religious thing. Do you think the majority of people view Valentine's Day as a religious holiday? Now, I understand it's St. Valentine, but... The majority of people do not view it as a a religious holiday, because even in the Bible it says that broad and spacious is the road leading to destruction, and many are on it, but very few are on this road to life. So most people just look at these things and go, ah, it's a kid's thing, and when I was in school, we all did it and got our candies, and, and I didn't really have any understanding of it back then. And for But for a lot of kids, it is awkward to be taught you know, some religious things about about the the beginning of Valentine's Day and how it all started. You can easily look it up in the encyclopedia. Well, I guess, I mean, well, Bob, I, look, I, I mean, I, I guess people can read religious overtones into everything. I would argue that for the overwhelming majority of, of students who are in public school classes, classrooms, when Valentine's Day comes along, there, there's nobody really thinking about the religious overtones of, of this. Matter of fact, I would argue that almost everybody would not view this as a as a um, as a holiday that has the religious stuff. Now, I, I get it. I understand. There's people that feel the same way about like Halloween. That well, we we shouldn't be having Halloween because that's like devil worship and things like that. And I guess my my advice would be if 
you're raising your children, and that's one. And I, I can't believe there's really too many kids in these schools that feel that way. But I guess if parents had the strong objection to their child being exposed to the concept of Valentine's Day parties and things of the like, well, I mean, all right, maybe you, 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 have, you hold the kid out that day or whatever. But I, again, I just don't think you legislate to what to what what I think is is such a non, with all due respect, type of mainstream view of Valentine's Day parties and, and the like. And my guess is, again, the school district. Yeah, they, they say it's the religions thing. My guess is it's this kind of larger point that's out there about we just don't like these holiday parties that are going on, and we're concerned that some kids might feel excluded. Well, okay, maybe the the better thing would be is to figure out how to make sure those kids don't feel excluded because they're going to be in social settings moving forward. Twelve fifty nine. One oh eight. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Eric, I, I admit I am now intrigued. I'm sitting here during your newscast. Okay. And for people who who don't know the setup, we have all these different TV monitors in the studio. And the ones right now we're looking at, big. we've got Fox News, we've got CNN, we've got the traffic cameras, mm-hmm. we've got a radar thing. Yep. And then we have a separate TV screen that, that has the, the in-house feed um, from our, our partners at today's TMJ4. So that, I, I was just kind of glancing over while you were doing your newscast. I'm sorry, I just wasn't staring at you. But I'm glancing <laughs> over, and they're, 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 it's a soap opera. It's Days of Our Lives, and all, there's this one gal who's like tied tied with restraints on a bed and then and she's fully dressed but she's like tied tied and it looks like the the special effects look like it cost all about five bucks so she's she's tied with her wrist to this bed and there's another gal who takes like a match and lights it and then there's this like big fire and then walks off so wow. well yeah, that was exactly right i'm, I'm kind of looking over and and again the the special effects look like they cost all of about like three bucks or whatever for this thing but i'm like okay what the heck is going on here? I, I do admit I, I'm kind of intrigued as to. <laughs> You're how, hooked. I, I, I'm hooked. I'm, I'm intrigued as to. I don't know any of these people, but I'm intrigued as to how the one girl got tied to the bedposts. I'm intrigued as to why the other girl is is la- lighting this on fire and mm-hmm. leaving. I, I I I don't know. I'm there, gonna have to figure this out. It seems like there are only three sets. They're either in a nice restaurant. Bedroom or a hospital. That right. Seems like it's always those <laughs> well, three well, sets. Well, well, this was a bedroom that they appear to be burning down. Yeah, I, right. I don't know. I was just kind of I was intrigued by that. You know, the um, before you go, it's kind of interesting. The the man who is accused, Jordan Frick, the guy who was accused yes. of murdering the the police officer, he was in court today. And and what happened is he waived his right to a preliminary hearing, and they set the trial for a July eighth, mm-hmm. with July fifteenth as being a backup. I actually I ran into his attorney in Florida last week. Is that um, right? I I know his his attorney. He's represented by local attorney who. I used to try cases against. Guy's name is Mike Chernin, and Mike's been around for forever. And I hadn't seen him in years. And I was down, waiting to come back from, uh, waiting to come back from Fort Myers last week. And I told the story. Our flight got delayed like four or five hours because there was the guy that committed suicide at the Orlando That's hotel right. at right. the Orlando airport to put everything behind. So we're sitting in the airport waiting four or five hours for the plane to get in so we can leave. And I look up and Mike Chernin was coming over to say hi. And I, I said we had lost track of each other. I said, you know, you you still still doing this and he said yeah, yeah i am and still taking you know and he had a whole bunch of police reports he said i'm actually kind of reviewing discovery it might have been that case so he you want to talk about a thankless job i mean in, in all seriousness i mean you want to I, I understand people 
tend to think ill of attorneys a lot, and I, I freely acknowledge that in many respects, I believe attorneys are their own worst enemies sometimes oh, with sure. the lawsuits that right. get filed yeah. and stuff. But, you know, there, there's no question. I mean, in this country, there is a presumption, innocent until proven guilty, which means that the state or the government has a burden of proving somebody guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And when you enter, for example, a not guilty plea, that's that, that's really from a legal perspective. It's saying government, state, I want you to put me to your proof. But you know, there there are cases and there are cases. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, you have a guy who acknowledges that he was firing this gun, you know, through a hole and he hit and killed a police officer. That That's a tough case. Oh, sure. But th- this is what you always expect, right, when you go through this procedural thing. Like, we, I, I think the suspect in Barron County, he also is right. pleading not guilty, even though he detailed methodically right. everything that he did. Generally, then what would happen next, if they actually do go to court, then that's one thing. But oftentimes, maybe there's a deal that is then presented. Right, if there's something that's available. Or the, the case of the guy in Barron County, I mean, you're going to have a whole issue with competency, I think. You right. know, is somebody competent, number one, to stand trial? Are they... Um, you know, were they legally insane? That's not the term they use anymore. But that, um, in the case of this, this Jordan Frick, I, I mean, I'm not privy to the discovery, but I, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think you could, I'm not saying that I buy this, but I, could you make an argument that maybe there's a, a lesser charge than first degree intentional homicide? I, maybe, you know, you, you do that. You know, who knows? And that kind of thing all plays out. I, I will say though, from a perspective of attorney, you know, is that the kind of case that you would want? You know, it's a very, very unpopular, uh, understandable, oh, sure, very, sure. very unpopular defendant who did something absolute, who is accused, who did something extremely horrific. That's just the reality there. So that's that's one where I, I do respect the attorneys that are willing to take those kind of cases because, uh, again, it's not it's not a popular sort of. Thing, but somebody has to do it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's true. So I, I ran into the guy who was, who was, uh, who's going to. I didn't realize that Mike had that case, but um, it, it's like I say, it's scheduled right now for July eighth. July fifteenth is a backup. Uh, he made an appearance today in front of uh, Milwaukee County Circuit Judge Jeffrey Wagner, who mm-hmm. ends up handling a lot of those different cases. Uh, one of the other things, as long as I'm, I'm dame dropping here, William Barr. Confirmed today yep, by the yep. U.S. Senate to be the next attorney general replacing Jeff Sessions. I've told this story before. I know Bill Barr. Bill Barr was the he was the la- he was the last attorney general under the first President Bush, mm-hmm. and that's when I was in the Department of Justice. So um, he, I mean, I, I I stayed into the beginning of the Clinton administration, so Janet Reno replaced him. But I I, I met Bill Barr on on multiple occasions and stuff, and um, very I, he he was. He was at least back in the day. We're talking about the you know early 1990s. He was the real deal. Um, my big question is: He's 68 years old. Why? Why would you come back and take that right. job? Well, that, what I was going to ask you is: It a lot of work when you're the attorney general. How much work are you doing? Are you delegating everything, or are you hands on on some of the like what What is his day to day? You are. You are the. You're not trying cases right, yourself right. or anything like that. You are, and, and there's this entire structure in the Department of Justice. You've got all these divisions and these division heads, and like, like for example, when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, if I wanted to do a wiretap, let's say I'm conducting an investigation into the Eric Bilstadt drug gang, mm. um, I I would have to put together all the information. I would have to send it off to Washington. I think it's still the case now. And then they have people that review this to tell you whether you can go ahead because they want consistent national policies. They don't want 
a U.S. attorney's office in Milwaukee doing things materially different than a U.S. attorney's office in Miami or sure, whatever. Sure. So, but but there's this entire structure in the Department of Justice that's set up for that. So, as the attorney general, you're you're more like a policy guy, and the the big stuff comes to your desk. You know, I mean, the the big stuff comes to your desk. Hey, we're going to invest the, pre- the president of the United States, but it, it's more <laughs> you like hear about that one, right? But it's it's more of a policy type of matter as opposed to a day to day roll up your sleeves and get involved in the okay. nuance of okay. any type of investigation. It, you know, but you you know you're, you're traveling around, it, and it, but it's not a figurehead role. I mean, because you're the one that's designed, you're the one that sets policy, saying, okay. Uh, civil rights cases. This is going to be one of our priorities, and this is this is what we're going to be looking for. And this is criminal division or civil rights division. I'm looking to make a statement, and if we find examples of police brutality, we want to make this a priority. Or back when I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office, it, this was the time of the war on drugs, and you had a lot of money a lot of the attorney general spent a lot of their time in creating task forces and and funneling organizations okay we want to go after drugs and stuff like that but okay. you know so but it, it's it, it's kind of interesting but I, I was very for what it's worth I was very impressed with Bill Barr I do sit there and say okay you're 68 years old you know you're walking into this cauldron <laughs> of, of just where nothing you do is going to make anybody happy <laughs> I mean it's just it's just not um, but I, I think he's a uh, I think he's a good choice. And again, this is somebody that has a lot of experience. Does he keep his portrait up? Because his old portrait is up right now at DOJ. Do they take it down and wait for him to, to be done with no, his career? I, I, well, that, I don't know. I would keep my old I would keep the you old keep portrait it up. up yeah. next to it, point at it. <laughs> this, hey, this, is, this is what I looked like. <laughs> is, this is what I looked like, you know, 20 yeah. some twenty some years ago. Save my first rodeo, kids. I, I think he's actually. I, 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 I'm a tough judge, but I think he's kind of aged well. Sometimes you always see that with presidents. I'm just always struck by you look at the president when they're first elected, and then you look at how they look eight years later. Oh, and, right, oh right, my right. gosh, you know. And and it happens. I mean, it happens to them all. You know, President Obama, all the gray hair mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. You didn't see that. I mean, President Bush. I mean, it it just shows you that that the only person that didn't happen with Ronald Reagan. Reagan looked the same. When he took office in 1980 and when he left office in 1988, right? Reagan looked the same, but I think it aged everybody else. Interesting. Okay, we're going to take a very quick break. When we come back, speaking of Washington, there is something a committee in Congress did yesterday that's going to be extremely controversial. I want to talk about it, and my reaction, I acknowledge it might surprise some of you. Stick around. It's 118. This is Jeff Wagner. One twenty-one, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right, I want to back into this topic. I, I have been accused of being inconsistent, but I'm really not on, on the whole issue of the wall. I, I think, I, I think claims that you need a wall, and I've said this since President Trump was candidate Trump, and he raised this, saying that you need a wall to run all across the southern border of the United States to stop illegal immigration. I thought that was silly. I thought it was impractical. Why? Because there's huge chunks of the southern border that are inaccessible. I put a wall in there. There's also huge chunks of the southern border that, that involve private property, and you can't just go and stick a wall up in the middle of somebody's backyard without lots and lots of litigation. So I, I thought that was impractical. At the same time, I, I also appreciate that there is a role 
um, when you're trying to secure a border, there is a role for walls or fencing in certain areas. And, and we have walls or fences in certain areas. And I think you can make a case that, you know, there you, you should extend these because there's places that it makes sense all across the border. No, but there are places where it makes sense. And both sides on that whole discussion just kind of dug themselves in. President Trump saying, no, I need a wall all the way across. And the Democrats saying, well, no, this is a wall is immoral. Well, that's that's crazy. As I said repeatedly, we <laughs> Summerfest has fences because Summerfest wants to keep people out that haven't paid. Uh, Miller Park has walls and fences. Why? Because they want to keep people out that don't have tickets. Okay, so it, it's all, there's a role for all of this. You just have to have some perspective on this. And my, my issue has been it's, it, it is a complete lack of perspective. Um, some people say, well, you don't have a wall because it's not going to stop all illegal immigration. No, it's not going to stop all illegal immigration, but it, it will, I think, make some stuff more difficult. So, and to me, you can't be an absolutist. The fact that something is not a 100% solution doesn't mean that it's not necessarily something that's worthwhile. And that's why I, I think, I mean, the president's going to sign this. He's going to get $1.5 billion or whatever it is to start extending fencing. And he'll probably figure out ways to continue to expand beyond that. And I do think a wall finds a role. Do you need a wall all across the whole southern border? No. But I think there is some merit to that. All right. Now, having said that, let me apply that same line of analysis to something else that is going on. And I go where angels fear to tread by talking about guns. This is the the one year anniversary of the, the Parkland shooting. And a number of people, again, continue to say, all right, we've got a problem with firearms in society. There's too many guns. There's too many guns in the hands of crazy people. There's too many guns in the hands of criminals. The problem, of course, is recognizing that there is a right to bear arms and recognizing that the vast majority of people, the vast majority, 99 point whatever percent, are law-abiding firearm owners who aren't going to take their firearm that they use for deer hunting or target practice or self-defense and go out and rob a 7-Eleven. They're not going to do that. They're not going to fly into a rage and drive up and down, you know, I-43 shooting indiscriminately at cars. That's the vast majority of people. So the problem is when it comes to trying to develop meaningful and reasonable gun control measures, the balancing is how do you deal with the fact that the vast majority of people do not create problems with firearms and the fact that, you know, you've got a small, statistically small group of people, most of whom have mental health issues or are criminals, you know, who get their hands on firearms. So how do you balance these respective rights, also given the fact that we're not going to confiscate guns from, from everybody and that we shouldn't? So there's always this balancing. One thing that I would hope that everybody, regardless of your political affiliation, left, right, in the middle, Republican, Democrat, independent, one of the things I would hope that we could all agree on is that people who aren't supposed to have guns shouldn't have guns. If you are a felon, you should not have a gun. If you've got mental health issues, you should not have a gun. If there is some other legal prohibition that's out there that says that you cannot legally own a gun, you shouldn't have a gun. All right. So I look at this and I say, if we all agree with that, 
I think that, you know, you have to look at reasonable things that might inconvenience some of the rest of us, but do serve to perhaps keep firearms out of the hands of people who shouldn't have them. Nowadays, if you go into a gun store or you go to a gun show and buy a firearm from what they call somebody who has an FFL, a federal firearms license, that person who is selling you the gun has an obligation to run a background check on you. And we now have this, it's called the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, NICS. And, you know, candidly, I mean, what happens? Prospective buyer buy, wants to buy a gun. They clean, they fill out a form. The holder of the federal firearms license initiates the background check either on the computer or by calling up. Most checks are determined within minutes, right? That's, that's, that's how, that's how it works. Now, this isn't a perfect system because, you know, people, people can lie to the gun dealer. Or what happens sometimes is you have folks who arrange what they call straw purchases. You know, I'm a felon. I want to buy the gun for myself, but I send my girlfriend in, and she doesn't have a criminal record. She buys the gun and gives it to me. Okay, so th- this background check is not perfect, but it is a way, at, at least at a threshold basis, of identifying people who have who are not legally allowed to buy guns and and stopping them and it does stop some people does it stop all people no and of course just because you get turned down by a background check doesn't mean you can't go out on the on the black market and and pick up a gun so i mean it's not perfect but it's a way of weeding people out right now the law as a general rule only applies to federal firearms dealers people that have this license they have an obligation to run the background check as a general rule, if you are not a licensed gun dealer, you don't have to run a background check on anybody. So, you know, you don't know if the person buying the gun from you is a felon or not. Yesterday, the House of Representatives, the committee, on pretty much a party line vote, passed a uh, passed a a law, a measure that they're going to be sending on. And what the measure said is that these background checks that now pretty much only apply to licensed firearms dealers would apply to all firearm sales. So, you know, if you're not a firearms dealer, but you're selling a gun, yes, you would have to run a background check on the person that you are selling the gun to. It passed on a party line vote. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here is my question for you. Are universal background checks, is that an unreasonable thing to ask? If you're selling a couple of firearms, is it unreasonable to expect that you make a you know you get the same form that federal licensed firearm dealers have to fill out and you run that check by calling that number or entering that information before you sell the gun 4147991620 we discuss in just a couple minutes it's 129 136 Jeff Wagner WTMJ I recognize that I'm going to infuriate a couple people by what I'm about to say but I guess I, I look at this background check thing the same way I looked at the the comments about bump stocks. Remember these the, these were the the things that you could buy for twenty bucks that you put on the back of your 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 firearm and it essentially 
takes a, a rifle and it turns it into a machine gun for all intents and purposes. And my argument was always, well, if you can't legally purchase a machine gun unless you go through all these hoops and get a special permit and get it approved by the local sheriff or something like that, if, if you can't do that, why should you be able to buy something for $25 that takes an otherwise legal weapon and converts it into something that you couldn't buy without jumping through these hoops? I guess I look at, at background checks the same way. Do I think it is a perfect thing? No. Are there all sorts of ways around it? Yes. Will it stop gun violence in America? No. But I guess I, I sit there and I think if if we agree that the premise is that people who should not have guns. We don't want people who shouldn't have guns to get guns. Seems to me it's not that unreasonable to say, all right, if you're going to transfer a gun to somebody, maybe you you should have to, you know, run the background check. And and again, it's easy to do that. It's not perfect and they miss some people, but it's a phone number or it's a couple things on a computer. We make you register for all sorts of things. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Kevin and Cudahy. Hi Kevin. Hey, how's it going? Real well, thank you. Okay, what do you think about this this idea of everybody having to go through a background check before they buy a gun? Absolutely, absolutely. It's just common sense. And, uh, you know, when you had earlier said that, you know, what if you're only selling a couple guns? Well, it doesn't matter whether you're selling a couple or a couple hundred, because a lot of private dealers can sell several hundred guns. Mm-hmm. So, so there is no cutoff there. Just do it. Just have the background check period. Well, right, yeah, I guess I look at this, okay, if, if you're going to sell a car, for example, you know, in a private party transaction, there's all sorts of paperwork that you have to end up doing to, to do that. And is it a bit right. of an inconvenience? Yeah. But we do that on a regular sort of basis. And, you know, and will it stop people from some some mentally ill people or criminals from getting guns? Absolutely. Well, no, but it, it, it might stop a, it might stop some people and or at least delay them. And maybe that's worth it. Yeah, absolutely. Abs- Absolutely is, is worth it. Yeah. Even if it saves one life. If it well, saves one life across the whole country, that's fine. Well, thanks, thanks for calling. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, again, and I, and then I, I'm getting a number of texts from people saying that they're, they're concerned about this being the slippery slope. If, first of all, you make people do background checks, the next thing you know, there's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be gun confiscation. Well, I think, I guess I don't buy that argument. I've always been troubled because by the slippery slope sort of argument because I think you have to kind of look at this and say, all right, has technology developed to the point where we are able to, I don't know, we're able to do something with, with a minimum of inconvenience? Do I support confiscation? Absolutely not. But, you know, do I support making it more difficult to transfer firearms to people who shouldn't have firearms in the first place. Well, I'm down with that. And I guess I've just never really understood the difference between if you're a federal firearms dealer and you're in the business of selling guns, you've got to do it. But if I've got the, and I don't mean to pick on gun shows, but if I've got the the table at the gun show and I'm selling eight or ten firearms, I don't have to do it. It it just doesn't make any sense to me. Let's talk to Mark and Racine. Mark, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Real well, thank you. What do you think? Uh, I'm probably going to make you mad, but I yeah. am a slippery slope guy. Okay. Um, you can ask people in Australia or Great Britain and how it started very, very casually. Uh, we're not going to ever go for your long guns. We're never going to end. Now people got to have their guns at a separate facility, drive over there to look at them. Right. It's, it's ridiculous. And 
also, like, what what about, do they have something in place for private sales? Because I've sold a couple of guns to family members over the year. Right. i got to run a back check on my uncle now. No, no, here, thanks. That, that's an interesting point. A number of people are asking that question. The here uh, Here's the exact answer to that. This bill that was passed in committee yesterday, said, it does create, there are exemptions to this requirement. Um, and one of those exemptions is, Gifts to family members. So I'm getting all these emails. So if you want to give your grandfather's hunting rifle to your son, at least my understanding of this bill is, no, that's not required. In There, there are a handful of states that for intrastate sales, and it's only a handful, you know, require background checks to be done. And in almost every situation, there are exemptions for transfers between family members. Now, it varies from state to state about, you know, what what is a family member? If I'm giving it to my brother-in-law, is that the same as giving it to my son? And and you get kind of deep in the weeds with that. And under this legislation, I, I don't know. All I see is it says, you know, if you were transferring a firearm to a family member, and I don't know how they define family member off the top of my head, you would not have to, to run that. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Steve in Whitewater. Steve, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. Sure, what do you think? Well, you've answered my first one. The family thing was a concern. Uh, second point, though, I, I've sold a few firearms in the past, and as I understand the rules, the only way that an individual without an FFL can sell a gun is if it's within your state. You cannot sell a, a gun, say, if I wanted to do it in Illinois. I cannot do that by the ATF rules. That being said... You know, if, if we wanted to go to a local gun show and I wanted to sell some guns at a table to local people, you know, what I would do is I'd require, you know, a copy of the person's uh, driver's license, you know, to prove that they're from the state of Wisconsin. And the, in the climate that we live in right now, I think there's a certain common sense that goes on the seller as well that you want to protect yourself. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, you're right. Background checks under the law are not required under federal law for intrastate firearm transfers between private parties. Now, some states have laws, but but yeah, if you're if you're in a state that doesn't have one of those laws, it's it's got to be an intrastate. It's got to be you're, you're in Mississippi or whatever, and you're selling it to somebody from Mississippi. Yeah. The, the second thing that I was also going to mention, you mentioned about Nick's. And one of the concerns I have with Nix, and I, I'm not that up on the laws, but what I understand is is that there are some concerns that we can't get the mental health records into those FBI yep. files due to HIPAA laws. Yep. Yeah. No. That should really be looked at, especially given all the recent tragedies, as you mentioned, seem to be connected in, in many ways to mental health concerns. Right. Which which is in thanks to call Steve, and, and that that is an extremely valid point and and that's why you know one of the other things that they're going to be looking at is this whole thing and some states have gone this way these red flag laws which makes it easier to identify people who well i don't know there might be a technical term for it but i'm just going to say nuts you know just these people who are nuts and and you know, and, and everybody knows they're nuts and they just they shouldn't be having access to firearms. But we do because here's the bottom line. You, Steve, you are absolutely right. We do a lousy capital L.O.U.S.Y. Right. There's no way in there. Lousy, I think, job of identifying people with, you know, serious mental health issues. And number one, 
keeping them off the streets, and number two, keeping firearms out of their hands. And I, I think that's a very valid point. And that's why I say I'm not one of these guys that think that if all of a sudden you you adopt a universal background check, that that's going to that's that's going to solve all the problems. It, it it's not. There's going to be people who aren't picked up by the system. I, I understand that. There's going to be the whole straw purchases. There's going to be the thing that if you get rejected, you're still going to be able to go out and you know try to find some avenue for getting a firearm. And where there's a will, there's a way. I, I understand all that, but like I say, I, I don't. I think when we come when we start talking about like gun control. I think we've got to move past this absolutist. There's there's too much tribalism and there's too much absolutism in the world today. Well, you know, you're you've you know, if you're um, in favor of gun control measures, that means that you're in favor of confiscating people's firearms, and that's what you want to do. Now, don't get me wrong. There are some people out there, that's what they think. They would like to have the government come and knock on everybody's door and take their guns out of their hands. There are people, that is what they want to do. And I, I think, you know, that's, that is wrong. That is wrong. It needs to be condemned. We, we can't do that, and we shouldn't do that. At the same time, there's the other extreme that say, well, if we put a limit on a certain type of, of ammunition or, you know, this or that or the other thing, it's, it's the slippery slope, but pretty soon everybody's going to be confiscating guns. I don't buy that either, with all due respect to one of our first callers. I think you have to... Say okay. What what is something that makes sense? Is there thing? Are there things that you can do, which aren't a substantial roadblock to the, the rights of private firearm ownership? That isn't confiscation or anything like that, but makes sense, especially given the technology that's out there now. The fact that you know you've got these national background systems where with a couple keystrokes or a phone call within a matter of minutes, you can usually find out whether somebody should have a firearm or not. And, and maybe that's an evolution of my position over, over the years. But I think we have to, again, just be voices of reason on this and say, no, we're not going to take people's guns. And anybody that wants to come in and take people's guns, well, they, they need to be they need to be shouted down. They need to be voted down. On the other hand, this idea that, well, we can't have any regulation at all. And and if that means that people, you know, are willy nilly selling guns to people who are mentally ill or are felons, you know, well, we why why should we stop them from doing that? Well, there's lots of reasons we should stop them from doing that. I guess this is one where I think I think there's. There's, there's middle ground and there's compromise that we should be able to latch on to. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 149, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. This week's Spring Into Your Home Showcase is sponsored by Adair Floors and Remodeling. Get personal care by Adair. I want to double back on something we discussed yesterday. The and again, this is in our in our tribalized, polarized society. Everything, everything I think gets blown out of proportion, and you have people who do stuff for political purposes and then act like they're outraged about this. So, okay, February is Black History Month, and what's happened is the black African-American members of, of the state legislature. They've got, like, their, their caucus. And they got together, and they drafted a, a resolution for the state to, to adopt, both the uh, Assembly and the Senate, honoring, uh, recognizing Black History Month, something that, that I think everybody 
everybody would agree with. All right, yeah, let, let's recognize this. And so then what they decided to do, and this is, again, these are the, the black, the African-American African American members of the Assembly and I think the Senate as well. They decide, okay, instead of just recognizing Black History Month, what we're going to do is we want to single out individuals for particular attention. And so in the resolution, it mentions a number of names, Condoleezza Rice, Marcus Johnson, the former Bucks player, and, and a, a wide variety of, of other names, calling out people individually. And then there is a decision made that in addition to these, I will say, non-controversial sort of names, let's stick in Colin Kaepernick. Now, Colin Kaepernick, let's face it, the reality is Colin Kaepernick, and of course everybody knows he's the guy that's, you know, got his fame by refusing to stand during the, the national anthem when he was playing for the San Francisco 49ers. All right, Colin Kaepernick is a very, very polarizing figure. Some people believe that Colin Kaepernick and his kneeling, it's a legitimate protest against the, um, you know, evils that have been foisted on, you know, minority America. Other people disagree with the sentiment of, of Colin Kaepernick and think that this, the kneeling is disrespectful and the kneeling is anti-police, et cetera, et cetera. All right. To me, I, I don't care where you are on, on the issue of Colin Kaepernick. You know, we've talked about that before. But let's be realistic. By putting Colin Kaepernick in this list with all these other people, this was an attempt by the members of the caucus who drafted this. This was an intent to make a very, very political statement. I mean, you could have chosen any number of African-Americans that are non-controversial, and they did. But Colin Kaepernick means different things to different people. And again, I don't care where you come down on this. This was a sort of in-your-face move. And so then what happened is you had the majority in the Assembly and the Senate who wouldn't go along with the resolution as long as it contained Colin Kaepernick. I think arguably because by putting him in there, it, it changes the focus away from recognizing prominent African-Americans as part of Black History Month for their various contributions to different levels of society, and it makes a political statement. And let's be honest here. The reason you would include Colin Kaepernick in the first place is you want to make a political statement. And the reason you want to exclude Colin Kaepernick is because you don't want to let the other side make their political statement. So now there's story after story about outrage and people. I, I, I'm looking at uh, you know John Erpenbach, who's a state senator out of Madison, and says this is one of the uglier votes the senators have taken. Well, okay, o- only because this this was people looking to try to promote provoke a political fight. You know, I would argue that if you want to take the step and the appropriate step of recognizing Black History Month, there should be a way that you could do it in a bipartisan fashion where everybody agrees. But you don't do that if you take one of the most controversial figures right now in when it comes to race in America and you try to put that person in. Why don't you, again, just stick to the people that are going to be non-controversial, people that everybody are going to recognize, and stay away from Colin Kaepernick. Because like I say, maybe maybe history is going to show that Colin Kaepernick belongs right up there with uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Maybe history will show that. Maybe it won't. 
But by putting the name in now, all you do is you further the divide. And I wonder if that was what some people were intending to do. You want to get the headlines saying, oh, the evil Republicans have moved, have uh, the evil racist Republicans have removed Colin Kaepernick's name from this resolution here. That's why we should hate them. And then the flip side is for people who say that Colin Kaepernick doesn't deserve this recognition. It just it, avoid the whole thing and go back to what the real purpose is, which is to honor black History Month, 155. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 208. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we have some breaking news. We're going to pick up the ABC report in about 30 seconds. Uh, As we've been reporting for a while, there appears to be a deal that's been cut between the Democrats and the Republicans in Congress to avoid another government shutdown. The big question has been, would President Trump agree to sign off on that? And apparently we're, we're going to be getting the answer. The The matter is going to be voted on this afternoon. Um, here is the ABC report saying what's going to happen. Stations ABC News in New York coming your way with a special report. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell indicating that the president has said he will sign the spending bill to keep the government open, but will also seek a national emergency for his border wall. A special report in 45 seconds from Mark. Okay, so that's the lead-in. We we're going to carry the special report, right? It's coming up in a few seconds as well. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I guess there, there's two elements of this. It's no surprise that President Trump, I think, wants to avoid a, a second government shutdown. We talked about this yesterday. It just... It didn't work out very well the, the first time. So by signing this, he gets about $1.375 billion to put towards the wall. The more controversial aspect of this is going to be the whole question of national emergency. Uh, there, there's very strict legal standards to do that, and we're going to be in lots of litigation over this. Okay, here is the formal ABC report. This is a special report from ABC News. I'm Mark Remillard. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell moments ago on the Senate floor says that the president has indicated to him that he will sign a compromise spending bill to avert a government shutdown, but that he will also declare a national emergency in order to get funding for his border wall. A vote on that spending bill is expected this hour in the Senate. Again, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says the president has indicated that he will sign a spending bill to avert a government shutdown, but will also declare a national emergency to get funding for his border wall. I'm I'm Mark Remillard. This has been a special report from ABC News. All right, and we'll analyze that a little more as the day goes on, and I'll be talking about this tomorrow as well once it happens, because, again, you can't just declare national emergencies without there being certain standards. And this is is certainly going to be something that's going to lead to all sorts of, I, I promise you, all sorts of litigation. And I know that there's a number of Democrats and there's a number of Republicans that are concerned about using this national emergency provision. Again, because of what we were talking about in the last half hour, that the whole concept of slippery slope and the, the idea that... Any president somewhere along the line who can't get some something that he wants funded, could you avoid and you know bypass the whole legislative branch by simply declaring a national emergency in a particular area? Like I say, this is one we'll probably talk about this extensively tomorrow, and I'll, I'll break down exactly what you have to show 
to, to qualify for a national emergency, and then we'll discuss whether or not this is a, a good idea. And, and by good idea, I don't necessarily mean how do you feel about the wall one way or the other. I mean, do you think it's a good idea for a president to end up doing that? So we're going to have that conversation as well. All right, so that's the breaking news. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to have a little bit of fun. It's Valentine's Day. Stick around. 212, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Two fifteen, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So, Gru, who is producing the show today and always, did you see what's in the break room? Have you been over the break room? They have a foosball table in our break room. Now, I love good karma. So, see, here's the deal. I, I want to say this in all honesty. I, I've worked for the federal government. I've worked for private law firms. I've worked for. Well, um, you know, th- this company, I work for Journal Broadcast and then Scripps and now Good Karma. Good Karma is, by, without a doubt, the, the most employee-friendly type, type. There's no question about it. They're incredibly employee-friendly. And for years and years here at our studios, we didn't even have a break room. There, there, was, no, there was no break room. There, there were three, honest to goodness, there were three little tables out on the loading dock, right off the loading dock, and there were a couple of vending machines. And and now we, we've actually got like an employee break room, and they've got fancy coffee, and they've got a microwave. And they, they I walked over there. Just, there's a foosball table there. Now, Gruer, do you play foosball? You a foosball guy? You, you play? Well, I, I have not in years and years. When I was in college, Gru says he sure he plays. I, I used to, I, and this is years ago, I used to be okay at it, but th- this was the big thing. Where I went to college, and this is before there was a uniform 21-year-old drinking age. Where I went to college, the drinking age was 21, except they'd have beer bars. But they weren't just beer bars. It was 3-2 beer, which is like 3.2% alcohol. It nasty, nasty stuff. So you had the regular bars for the people who are 21 and older. And then for people who are 18 to 21, you'd go to these beer bars and you just like drink this 3-2 beer. I, the worst hangovers I ever had was off of this 3-2 beer. But you, you'd go there and it gave you a place to socialize and we, we'd play foosball. And I, you know, I, I actually, I, I hung around some people that were really pretty good at it and I never quite had the reflexes they did. And I'm sure that that skill has decreased over the years, but we got foosball now, Radio City. Boy, I tell you, that's something else. That's a Valentine's Day gift. Speaking of this, it is Valentine's Day. And I, I wanted to do a Valentine's-themed sort of fun topic that was there. Now, let's, let's, let's get in the mood here. Now, if you follow, believe it or not, okay, that, that's Paul McCartney and Wings, 1976. That song, I believe, debuted at number one. It was at number one for a long time. It, it was, when you look at love songs, it occupied the, I've got the thing right here somewhere, but it, it that, that song in and of itself was like number one in the pop charts for, forever. If you follow me on Twitter, at, it's again, it's at Jeff Wagner 620 I actually sent out a link to the original the original video from Paul McCartney and Wings, you know, the original video that they had promoting, you know, silly love songs. But, I, you know, maybe 
maybe that's not your ultimate silly love song. Maybe that's not your ultimate love song, but, you know, a lot of people did like that tune. I thought we'd have a little bit of fun on Valentine's Day just because sometimes it's appropriate to lighten the mood. It's been kind of not just with the weather, but with some of the news that's been out there. It's been sort of a tough, you know, week or two weeks around here. And I thought for Valentine's Day, we'd, we'd talk, we would talk music for a minute. All right. I have in front of me, I am holding, uh, well, it's actually, it's kind of a, from several different websites, um, the top 50 love songs of all time, the 50 best love songs of all time, love songs you have to know. I thought for Valentine's Day we'd have a little bit of fun. Our number is 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It is Valentine's Day. My guess is perhaps you have that one romantic song, that one love song that really speaks to you. It is special to you. It's special to your spouse. So let's have a little bit of fun on Valentine's Day. All right. What is, in your opinion, what is your what is your silly love song? What is your love song? What is your romance song? What is the best the best love song of all time? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. And it could be a current tune. It could be, I don't know, maybe you want to go back to the Frank Sinatra days. Maybe it's something from uh, the 70s. That's when the, the Paul McCartney tune was. But in honor of Valentine's Day, all right, your favorite love song, the best romance song ever, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Let me let uh, Grew an opportunity to line up the phone calls. We'll be back to discuss in just a moment. 220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very. It's 222, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Hey, if you haven't noticed, today is Valentine's Day. We're talking about the greatest romantic songs of all time. Let's start with Katie in Burlington, a romantic at heart. Hi, Katie. Hi, I, while I was on hold, I looked up your list, and what's funny is the song I almost picked is number two, Roberta Flack, uh, If Ever I Saw Your Face. I walked down the aisle to that song, but when I really think about my favorite of all time, it's Tupelo Honey by Van Morrison. Interesting. You know, a Van, uh, there's a couple Van Morrison songs that made the various lists that I have, but Tupelo Honey, that's your favorite one, huh? Absolutely. That man's voice was magic, and that song is just... You know, it's one of those songs, like, if ever a man sung that, played that for me, he'd have my heart. I think it's the most beautiful song. <laughs> okay, so for, for the single guys that are out there, um, keep that one in mind, huh? Yes, yes. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day to you as well. The On, on the list that, that I have, Sweet Thing by Van Morrison is the song that um, made it. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to, let's see, Greg in West Dallas. Greg, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Okay. I always, loved, I always loved Unchained Melody by the Righteous Brothers. Oh, that that's, matter of fact, okay, let's see. I've got a couple lists here. That's that's number two or three on one of one of the lists that I have, Unchained Melody. There's a couple different Righteous Brothers songs that made it, but that's, that is at the top of most of the lists that I have. Number three on the list I have right here. It's 
not it's not mine and my wife's song, but it is way up there on my list. Well, right. That I mean, no, thanks to call. That's and that that's all you can you know, that's all you can ask for. Let's talk to Jennifer in Waukesha. Jennifer, good afternoon. Hi, Jennifer, you're on the air. I'm here. Hi, Jennifer, go ahead. Oh, okay, sorry, we lost. Oh, go ahead. Um, I'm going to say Huey Lewis in the news. Happy to be stuck with you. I've seen him at Summerfest in 85, met my husband. Oh, okay. That's All right. what I use as my wedding song. Oh, really? Okay, so because it, it had it had just had that kind of significance to you, huh? It did. It's silly and fun, and I love that song. I think about my husband all the time when I hear that song. Well, that's the important thing. Thanks to call. That's that's the important thing. It's got that personal touch uh, for you, Michelle and Grafton. Michelle, you're on WTMJ. Hi. This is more for my parents, but the way you look tonight, because I remember, and it was originally performed by Fred Astaire. And it won the Academy Award, I think, for Best Original Song in 1936. It's right. done many times. But um, when my dad had Alzheimer's, I, I had um, a CD of just love songs from weddings that were older. And um, he'd hold, put his arms around me, and we'd pretend to dance, even though he was sitting. And he'd sing to me, and it was just beautiful. Oh, jeez, that sounds. That, that, see, and that's thanks for That's the great thing about music. It just <clears throat> it brings back all those those different memories. People people talk about. You know, different uh, songs. Uh, Fran and I, our wedding song was Jimmy Buffett's Come Monday. You know, that's now I, I mean, I don't know that that's going to find any. I don't know that it's going to find its way onto any of the classic love song lists. But, you know, I'm a Jimmy Buffett fan and it, it worked for us. And the folks that performed it did an absolutely outstanding job. Let's talk to Amber in Pewaukee. Hi, Amber. You're on WTMJ. Hi. Um, so my husband and I got married in Las Vegas, so we kind of wanted a Vegasy right. love song. So um, I, our wedding song was Dean Martin, Ain't Love a Kick in the Head. And it's not really traditional, but it's like fun and quirky. So that was a really fun uh, song. Right. I was going to ask song. you why, of all the different, you know, I mean, I see I get the, I, you, you had a Vegas wedding, huh? <laughs> what, 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 I, I assume this was something that was planned out as opposed to like spontaneous like happens to some people. <laughs> yes, it was not a second last minute decision. It was planned out. Okay. I, I'm, I'm kind of curious as to of all the different like themes that you could have, you know, the, like the Sinatra stuff and all, you, you chose Dean Martin, huh? Yep, we went with Dean Martin. It's just it's got a really like funky beat to it. And um, I don't know, it's just... Uh- not traditional, and we're kind of not traditional. So. Oh no, no, thanks for no, and, that, and that's see, and that's that's the great thing about this topic. It, it doesn't matter. It, it's whatever whatever ends up working for you. Tim in Green Bay. Tim, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, mine might not be the most romantic song in the world, but it's the world that means the most. Uh, the song that means the most to me and my wife, and it's the '80s song, but it, it's called "Right Here Waiting" by Richard Marks. And uh, the reason it's so, uh, you know with us that at the end of 2003 I was called Iraq so and I was in two, at the end of 2003 to 2005 and my wife declared that our song oh oh so anytime you hear that anytime it comes on the radio or whatever it brings back all sorts of memories I would assume all sorts of memories and all sorts of tears yep. <laughs> yeah outstanding thanks for the call thank you for your service Cindy and Big Ben Cindy you're on WTMJ hi hi Cindy hi Okay, what, what what's yours? Uh, my favorite song is "Let It Be Me." Let it be me by. 
Oh, I don't know. It goes way back to the 70s. Okay. <laughs> oh, don't say way back to the 70s, Cindy. I'm a, Cindy, I'm a child of the 70s. I don't think it was way well, back. It seems like it was yesterday. Well, so am I, but uh, I can't remember the uh, Got artist. It. So. Okay, we'll figure that out. Thanks. Mike in Brookfield. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hey, good morning, or good evening, I should say. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. We'll get it right. Hi, Mike. What do you think? <laughs> How about Wonderful Tonight by Bye. Eric Clapton? Right. That that makes just a ton of the lists that are out there. Yeah, just another one of those songs. So thanks to Cole. Look, I, I'm sorry, i got to take a break in just a couple minutes. Um, a lot of great things are up there. September song, Vision of Love. Let, let me, yeah, let me give you the, let me give you the list that I have. Some of the, some of their top ten. Crazy little thing called Love. Can't Stop Loving You. Uh, My Love by Paul McCartney. Uh, I told you the sweet thing by Van Morrison. That's one of the things that's on the list. Uh, oh, there's so many good things. Your song by Elton John. Yeah, that would be one that would be there. Say a little prayer by Aretha Franklin. Let's stay together by Al Green. Pretty much anything by Al Green. Unchained melody by the Righteous Brothers. Wonderful world. Sam Cooke. All oh, these great ones. Other list I have. Just some of the things. Endless love by Diana Ross and Lionel Richie. Got to do that. All these things are just absolutely tremendous silly love songs that was number one for five weeks back in 1976 how deep is your love by the bjs Uh, all this great sort of stuff bottom line is remember it is valentine's day figure out what your special song is and hum it to your sweetheart tonight Thirty-eight, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Yes, our wedding song was "Come Monday." It was a Jimmy Buffett tune, but you know there, there was a woman on a violin that played it. They are some of our friends and a great guitarist and stuff. And it, yeah, and it 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 seemed to work for us. So again, it's Valentine's Day. Whatever your wedding song is, uh, that's just absolutely great. It's between the two of you, and it's super. Or you're maybe you're not married yet, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Nothing wrong with great love songs. All right, I, I the, again, the breaking news is that the president is going to sign this deal that's been cut to avoid another government shutdown. Now, the the added aspect of that is apparently the reports are that he is going to declare a national emergency. And so what that means is he's going to take funding from other things and use it to, again, finance the construction of this border wall. We'll talk about it tomorrow. I, I want to hear exactly what the president says. And, and I, there's an issue here. And I'm trying to be the voice of reason, regardless of how you feel about whether we need the wall or not. There there is an issue with this whole national emergency declaration, and and only because it's an exercise of presidential power that it's supposed to be when there's a true national emergency, not when a president is unhappy because he couldn't get funding for a certain project through the the legislature. So I want to hear what the president's going to say about this, if in fact he's going to do it, and then I'm going to have some thoughts about it tomorrow, so check that out. All right. I am a... uh I'm a Bruins Brewer season ticket holder. I, I got the 20 pack. I got it last year, and I split it with my one of my very very best friends, Evan. And it, it, it's perfect. We got great seats. We go to 20 games, and I pick up a couple more tickets during the the rest of the year. And one of the great things about being a, a partial season ticket holder is you get access to you know you have access to buy other tickets ahead of people who aren't 
season ticket holders or partial season ticket holders. We got some great tickets to the playoffs last year as well as the ones that we got to buy. But um, I got so I got this note earlier this week, and of course the Arctic tailgate starts on Friday, so it's people's ability to buy individual tickets. Well, they sent something out to the season ticket holder saying, hey, if you want to buy tickets to single games before they go on sale to the general public, here's this code you can use, and you can do it you know, before they go on sale to the general public. And in the email, one of the things it said was, this does not apply to Chicago Cubs games. Hmm. So I, I wasn't really thinking about it, and I, I just, okay, it doesn't apply to Cubs games. Well, now I, I realize why it doesn't apply to Cubs games. I mean, here's the story. Beginning at 9 a.m. today, tickets for the Brewers' 10 home games against the Cubs at Miller Park. Just think of it. they got 10 home games against the Cubs. Major League Baseball teams play 162 games. Ten of those games are, are, are in Miller Park are going to be against one team. In this case, it's the Cubs. In any event, starting at 9 a.m. today, Tickets for the Brewers games against the Cubs at Miller Park are going to be available. But the the catch is they are only available to Wisconsin residents. And the promotion ends at 11.59 p.m. tomorrow. So if you want to buy tickets from the Brewers, Miller Park, to the Cubs games, you have to be a Wisconsin resident. Now, the the Brewers, they announced this on Twitter. What they say is, any claims that this presale is an attempt to prevent Cubs fans from getting Brewers tickets are, well, pretty accurate, actually. (laughs) Okay, Um, this this is, you know, this is a a promotion. Now, they they tried a variation of this last year. Um, This is a little bit different. And, of course, the big difference now is that, you know, over the last few years, let, let's face it, the Cubs were a better team than the Brewers. And what ended up happening is every time that you would go over to Miller Park, it would seem like 75 to 80 percent of the crowd was Cubs fans because tickets were hard to get at Wrigley Field. The Cubs were really good. The Brewers weren't necessarily that great. And you'd have all these Chicago fans that would pick up the tickets and then they'd come up here and they'd take over the, the stadium. Last year, there was still some of that. But at least anecdotally, the Cubs games that I went to, there wasn't as much of that. There were more Brewers fans. And, of course, this year, I think you can make a strong case. We'll we'll know in October. But I think you can make a strong case that the Brewers are a better team than the Cubs. And so, you know, you have all this interest in the Brewers. But nevertheless, you have, you know, fans, Wisconsin residents, that are being given an opportunity to buy stuff first. Now. The problem with this, from a perspective of, of trying to make sure there's nothing but Brewers fans in the stadium, the problem with this, of course, is that while the Brewers will only be selling to Wisconsin residents, and I, I through you know, Friday at midnight, Friday at 11.59, and, and I understand that, that there are people who live in Wisconsin who are Cubs fans. I, I get that. But in general, I think it's probably fair to say that most of the people who live in Wisconsin are, are Brewers fans, if you're going to be baseball fans um, in general. The problem, of course, with this is that there's there's nothing that stops my producer, Gru, 
from going out, buying four tickets, who is a Wisconsin resident, buying four tickets to a Cubs game, and then turning around and reselling them on the secondary market, you know, going the StubHub route and that, and, you know, paying $50 for a ticket and selling them to somebody from Chicago for 200 bucks. There's There's nothing that stops him from doing that. I don't think the Brewers have any way of, of reining that in. But I think their hope is that the people who do this aren't going to sell them to people from Chicago and, in fact, are actually going to go to the game. All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I, I want to tee up this variation of it. Let us assume, for the sake of argument, that you're not purely just in it for the money. You're not a Wisconsin resident who doesn't care about baseball, but says, hey, I can go and I can pick up some brewer tickets and I can turn around and I can sell them and I can make a bunch of money off it. Let let us assume that you're not just purely the mercenary and instead you are the baseball fan and you are the Brewers fan and you have a chance to get these tickets to what will clearly be very, very sought after games. Is there any circumstance under which you would resell them to somebody from Chicago? 414-799-1620. That is the Accurate Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Again, I understand this is one of these deals where just because you have a right to do something doesn't necessarily mean that it is the right thing to do. As part of my season ticket package, I, I looked. I, I have access, I've, I've got tickets to either two or three Cubs games. There is no way in God's green earth that I would resell these to somebody from Chicago. I I just, I wouldn't. I would give them away to another Brewers fan before I sold them. All right, if this were you, would you be trying to make some money off of this, or is it time to say, hey, we've got this really special team, and we're not going to give those tickets away to somebody from Chicago who might want them? 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. To me, this is one of the tests about whether you're a real fan or not, whether or not you're willing to say, look, I know I can make some dough on this, but I, I don't want Miller Park to be Wrigley Park North. I'm going to the game, or if I can't go to the game, I'm giving them to somebody who can go to the game. 246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you're on the line, please hold on. 248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I'll be honest with you. Again, I have this 20-pack of season tickets. I I think there were two Cubs games, maybe three, that we went to last year. I sit next to the same people. And for the Cubs games, they had sold them, and it bothered me. Let's talk to Tom in Sheboygan. Tom, hello. Hey, um, thanks for taking my call. So I just honestly think it's taboo. It's like sitting in the visitor section when you... When you give the other team your tickets, we're we're there to represent our team and support our team, and whether they're doing good or bad, it's uh, it's it's just in our heart. If you're a true fan and you spent money on tickets, why would you ever give them to the opposing team? Right, especially when it's Cubs fans. Oh yeah, especially <laughs> Cubs fans. Cubs or or Bears or <laughs> right now, I, I mean, especially. Yeah. Oh, thanks. No, I thanks for the call. You can tell it's dry outside. My voice is kind of catching up to me. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right. There's just no way, no way that I would ever do this. Now, I understand you have a right to do it. Brewers can't stop you from doing it. But you got to support your team, don't you? Ruth in Kenosha. Hi, Ruth. You're on WTMJ. Hi, Jeff. How are you? I am well, thank you. Would you ever do this? Oh, my goodness. 
I was looking at the tickets today, and I'm probably going to get some before the deadline. Um, just waiting to maybe contact a few other people because you can get eight at a time. Sure. And I would purchase them and go to the game, try my darndest to get there. If I can't get there, I'm going to gift them to a Brewers fan. Absolutely. I've been to Cub Brewer games way long ago. And so I, I don't go to them anymore because it's just obnoxious. Right. Right. And, and, and it's changing a little bit. And I, I could, yeah. you know, I mean, truthfully, Ruth, maybe I, I could understand that when the Brewers were bad and the Cubs were really good. Okay, maybe maybe you get that, but nowadays the Brewers are really good. And again, unless you're a pure mercenary here, I, I don't care about baseball. Well, well, then then you should let a baseball fan have them, and you should let a Brewers fan have them, as far as I'm concerned. Right. I mean, and I would go, I would go to those games, and I would feel bad for the team when the Brewers were getting yeah. less reaction than the Cubs in their home te- home uh, yeah. stadium. It was just kind of sad, and I, it made me sad, and I was like, I'm not going to these games anymore. It makes me a little sad. Well, it, it does. Now, thanks. And I, I, whenever I say this, so bear with me, because I, I say this with affection, and I've said this before, I think individually Cubs fans can be the nicest people in the world. Collectively, you get a bunch of Cubs fans together, and you throw in a bunch of old-style beer. And I, I say this, I've never been around a more obnoxious group of people in my life. Now, I, I understand I'm now, by having said that, I'm going to be getting emails from Cubs fans for the longest time. But I'm just saying that is my experience. Individually, very, very nice. Collectively, especially sitting in Miller Park, and especially in occasions where the Cubs were winning. Now, the, the Cubs kind of had the Brewers number early in the year, and that switched, and and so when when the Brewers are winning, Cubs fans pretty darn quiet. But I just it's like okay, look, th- this is just kind of a litmus test. I don't care if you can buy the tickets for fifty bucks and you can resell them on StubHub for one hundred fifty. I, I don't care. Sometimes sometimes it isn't about the money. Sometimes it's about the principle. Four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. Let's talk to Joseph in Illinois. You're on WTMJ. Hello. Good morning or good afternoon. Good afternoon. Uh, Jeff, I had to make this call because I've listened to you for years. I live in Illinois. I participate in the uh, Cubs and Brewers. I participate in the uh, Bears and the Packers. I love all four teams. But to listen to your show now, I have to, about all the things you've ever talked about are things that I have agreed with you time in and time out. I cannot agree with this. Uh, putting the uh, people that come to see the uh, the game, the, the Cubs people, to put them off to not be able to purchase tickets. What happened to all the years when the Brewers were not such a great team and the people from Illinois packed that stadium and paid for taxes, bought food? What happened to that time? What happened to all that time that it was supported by, let's say, the Cubs fans? Well, because now the Brewers are good, and we should be root. So, if you want to say that this sounds like sour grapes, I'm not going to argue with you, Joseph. Yes, absolutely. I, I respect you. <laughs> I, I respect you more than you could ever know. Right. But I have gone up there. I know there are people that get carried away. But however, to to punish the people of 
the, of the great state of the great state of, of Illinois. Okay, no thank. I I know I get it. No thank. I I get it. I'm 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 sorry. And look, and let let's nobody makes any bones about this. I mean, the Brewers are actually they say yeah. I mean, if you if you think we're trying to prevent Cubs fans from getting Brewer tickets, you're right. That's what we're trying to do. And 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 I I get it. I I understand all that. And I I think it is a tribute, by the way, to Cubs fans that they travel so well. And, and that's those are all pluses. I I get all that type of stuff, and you can actually argue that the Brewers are maybe doing Wisconsin fans a favor because they're they're making it more difficult for out-of-state people to get them on the secondary market. So hey, you know, you buy them for fifty, you roll them over and sell them for a hundred and a quarter. You you know, you've made some money. So maybe this is just kind of a gift to the mercenary elements. I'm just saying. As far as I am concerned, there's times when you got to support your team, and and if you go out and you buy these tickets. I hope you're a Brewers fan, and I hope you end up using them. I'm glad the rivalry has heated up, and I guess we'll see where this game. And I, I understand if it sounds like sour grapes, it is sour grapes. Okay, I I get it, and I understand that the Cubs fans came up here and spent all sorts of money. Thank you, I appreciate that. But you know, I want Miller Park to be packed with Brewers fans, and I don't want Brewers fans to be selling their tickets in the secondary market to the Chicago Cubs fans. Because because they can get a few bucks more. I mean, go to the games, support the team. Big rivalry this year. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? 255, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. John McCure's back. We'll find out what he has on his mind. Actually, he was back yesterday as well. Stick around.